Hello and welcome to Journal Club again. Um, sorry, we kind of missed last week. It's another. We had another just kind of rough week where we had a patient that decided to cause problems right when we were supposed to be during Journal Club. Mm-hmm. So um, it didn't happen, but that's okay. So we postponed the articles for this week. Um, and it, yeah, it's the David and Bobby show yep. for Journal hey, Club. Welcome back, David Grant. Thank you for being here. Um, a couple articles uh, that we're going to talk about this week. It was a little. It, it was a little different. I, I <laughs> trying to find um, like the theme. Yeah, um, they're really was, interesting articles. Yeah, they, so we could make an argument like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like I don't know how to link those together, <laughs> but um, that's okay. I don't need you to link them together. Um, but you know, it's just it's still always a good idea. Um, Got to. Articles, articles, articles. Mm. <laughs> you gotta, you know, we still gotta go over them. It doesn't matter if they if they link up really That's nicely right. or not. But I'm like a super nerd when it comes to just like temperature measurement, and mm-hmm. I feel like we yep. we gloss over that a lot, and mm-hmm. we don't get into like what is the temperature and why. Like, you know, we're just like, oh, the temperature's high. That's really bad. And it's like, wait, 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 let's, let's stop and talk about it. Um, so, you know, anybody that's talked to me for more than like a week has probably realized that I get, I get wait a minute, let's not gloss over that. Hypothermia, hyperthermia, fever, yep. all of that. Um, and I think if you understand the physiology behind it, it, it just makes sense. And the patients are often telling you, this is what I'm doing. Yep. Um, so I, I love that kind of basic stuff that doesn't require fancy diagnostics. It doesn't require just a little bit of thought on your part. Yep. Um, so that's, that's the association between these articles. And I thought, like you said, they're both really interesting. So we're going to start, um, the first one we're going to start with is the post-anesthetic hyperthermia in cats. We're going to start with the veterinary article. So this is by, uh, Lisa Posner and friends. Um, Lisa is a, somebody I know, anesthesiologist yeah. at NC state. She's pretty awesome. Um, she, so she interviewed for a job here, I think right did around she? the time this came out. Oh, did but, she? But uh, chose to go to NC State instead. Oh, uh, which ultimately that was good for me because then she was there when I was there during oh, okay. my residency. So mm-hmm. I'm not sad about that. Um, but um, mm-hmm. so yeah, she and I have crossed paths uh, a number of times over the years. Like she's just great. So I was excited to see that. Um, so this is from 2007. So it's a little bit older article: veterinary anesthesia and analgesia. Um, and essentially, you know what they were. And I'll be curious to get your perspective on this too. But oh. um, they they were looking at you know, hyperthermia postoperatively in cats and trying to figure out if there's a, an association between what drugs those cats were given in the pre-anesthetic and anesthetic period. Um, so this was a prospective stu- uh, study, which is just in and of itself always pretty awesome. <laughs> I mm-hmm. get excited about those. Yep. Um, they had 40 cats that were getting spayed, castrated, or declawed. The declaw kind of dated the, the article <laughs> a little bit, mm-hmm. I thought. Um, you might have a hard time getting that, that many. Um, but then they were randomized, um, 10 cats in each group. Um, and each group had a different uh, pre-anesthetic protocol, their, their pre-anesthesia. So um, it's been a couple of weeks since I read these. So let's see. We had glycopyrrolate and ACE. ACE. Oh, yeah, that's right. Everybody got glycopyrrolate and ACE bromazine. Yep. And then the, the secondary drugs were either hydromorphone um, alone um, or metatomidine. Um, so again, this kind of dates the article a mm-hmm. little bit too, not dexmedetomidine. It's the same drug for anybody who's not sure just uh, uh, which uh, antimero uh, you have. So they're left and right or just, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and then the anesthesia was induced. So that was one group. They got hydromorphone or sorry, it was kind of a two separation thing. So they yeah. either got hydromorphone or metatomidine and then they either got ketamine um, and diazepam or propofol. So there were four groups then. So you either got hydromorphone, ketamine, diazepam, hydromorphone, propofol or 
metatomidine, diazepam, ketamine, and metatomidine, propofol. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So those were the four different groups, but everybody got the glycopyrrolate and azepromazine. And then they basically did their surgeries um, and then monitored them for five full hours after um, anesthesia. I think I think it was five hours from the time of extubation, if I remember correctly, yep. um, and looked at just monitored their temperatures over that time frame. And their materials and methods are... Detailed, detailed, yes. detailed. You so, could repeat this you know, study. I, yep, you can repeat the study absolutely because they said every little thing they did, yep. including stuff that we all take for granted that we yep. all know that we do. Yep. Um, so no, I think and that's that, outstanding. It is. It's really nice because, and that's the whole point, right? That's what the materials and methods are yep. for. One, so you can assess and you know make critiques, but mostly so that you could repeat it. Yep. <laughs> so we could have more numbers if we needed. Um, yeah, no, it, it was, it's a really well-written article and um, a well-designed study in its simplicity. Mm -hmm. I think people overlook simple studies sometimes, but like those I'm, are the best ones. I'm they're clean. I know. They're like, just ask one question, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not make it too fancy. But they did actually look at a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Um um, and they did, they talked a little bit in the, the intro, like why, you know, they chose these things. These different drugs have been associated with, you know, concern for um, hyperthermia. Um, they also looked at kind of a secondary thing was um, um, their degree of, oh, what word did they use? Basically, how crazy were they afterwards? Oh, um, yeah, recovery activity. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember mm -hmm. what term they used anymore. Yeah, but yeah, how like awake that. were they? Like, because people worry about ketamine and mm -hmm. they get kind of loopy after, um, during the recovery phase. So, and then the question is, is that why their temperatures are high, right? right? Just muscular activity. Um, yep. So they did try to um, account for that. Um, and the other thing, so when they were analyzing the results, they defined norm or hyperthermia as anything above 102.5, mm -hmm. which is fair. I, I think you can have a debate about whether that's truly normal, but you right. have to have a cutoff somewhere. And I think that's yep. one that most people would agree with. Um, and yeah, so then, you know, the, the main results were pretty interesting. So I think every single cat, if I remember, every single cat at extubation had a lower temperature than they did at induction. Yep. So anesthesia, yep. predictably, yep. Um, caused a, uh, a decrease in temperature. Mm -hmm. So, which I think is actually really interesting though, because if you're saying the drugs we gave at the beginning mm -hmm. are what is potentially associated with the hyperthermia, right. but it's not happening until after we're done with our procedure, or at least the balance, you know, yep. like maybe it was happening, but the, the overshadowed a hypothermia from all the things that anesthesia causes. I don't know. Yep. Um, but so yeah, initially at extubation, the cats were all colder than they started with. And then um, mm -hmm. th that's when, that's when it gets fun. So yeah. um, basically in every single group, there was at least one or two cats that had hyperthermia in every single group, but yeah. it was much more common in the cats that got hydromorphone. Absolutely. That was that's the that's the take home essentially. I think second most common was maybe the ketamine. I can't remember now. Yeah, so it was a hundred percent of the cats that got hydromorphone, diazepam, and ketamine. Eighty percent of the cats that got hydromorphone and propofol. Yeah. Uh, Ten percent of the metatomidine, diazepam, ketamine, and thirty percent of the metatomidine, propofol. Yeah, something like that. So, so in other words, yeah. it's really common. It's very common. Yeah, it was. The most common was if they got hydro and ketamine. Like that, th those two yep. seem to be the most likely. But hydromorphone by itself was associated with, so the opioid was associated with quite a bit, even in the absence of ketamine. Right. And um, yeah. And then, I, I, you know, 
So not surprising, but I think that was really important to be like, hey, this is maybe more common than we even recognize. Absolutely. Um, so that's a really important finding of this study. Um, and I guess, you know, the other the other take home, oh, what was the highest number they recorded? It was pretty high. Like Do you a, remember? Like a, well, they had a couple of cats they had to, um, that exceeded their upper um, temperature limit. Yeah, what so they were they comfortable with in the study. To recover them. With oh, maybe that's what I'm cooling. remembering. Um, and I think that cutoff was like 106 was or something. 106 I don't, or 107. I've I think the highest here. one in the ones that were included was 104. Yeah, any cat with a rectal temperature greater than 105 was removed from the study. Yeah. And they had two cats that they had to remove and cool. Yeah. And those were in the, not surprisingly, hydroketamine um, group. Yeah. Oh yeah, 107 maximum temperature. That's where it was in the high. Yeah, hydromorphone um, diazepam ketamine group, 107 degrees. Yeah. Now, at what point do you get scared? I we, that, that wasn't the point of the study. No. So you know they had predetermined, like you said, if they uh, you know were above 105, they were like, okay, we're not we're not going to sit on this. Um, but the question becomes like, is that what we need to do? That's a whole right. separate question. Um, but yeah, this hyperthermia is really common. Mm -hmm. And I think that fits with what I feel like I've seen in cats in the hospital, not just post anesthesia, but just we give them drugs and they do weird things with drugs sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't have appreciated it happening this often. And so it, it does make me wonder if, um, Maybe the glyco and the ACE have some interaction with yeah. all of these drugs, yep. causing it to be more frequent than here in our hospital where we don't use either of those very often. Where a lot of people don't use them anymore. Yeah. 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 So that's a good question because I, I think we don't also give enough credit to, like you just implied, drug-drug interaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so it's easy to be like, oh, hydromorphone was the most associated, but was it? Is it the combination of hydromorphone and ACE or hydromorphone mm -hmm. and glyco, where if you just gave hydromorphone by itself, would that not have been the same? So yeah, you'd, you could repeat this study a million different ways and try to get sure. different combinations. Um, but, uh, but, but I would say for my experience, we're seeing cats in ICUs that get all sorts of different drugs. Um, I definitely see, or I feel like I see, uh, this is anecdotal, so take it for what it's worth. But um, that I see cats becoming hyperthermic in the hospital after buprenorphine alone, mm -hmm. um, any opioid, ketamine for sure, like just sure. drugs, like name a drug. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, if a cat has gotten a drug, particularly, you know, sedative agents, um, uh, analgesic agents, things like that, sometimes they're going to become hyperthermic. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean it's a fever. Right. Which mm -hmm. I think that's the other important thing. I think by five hours after surgery, all of the cats, I don't know if they'd normalized. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember now. But they were they were coming back. To, it might have been, I think they were normal. They were normal. I think they were normal yeah, by five hours. I think hours. that's another big take home here yeah. is that you don't necessarily need to intervene with yeah. NSAIDs or external cooling. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I, I would have that question even on the ones that exceeded 105. Like Correct. I said, that, sure. that was their study and that's fine. Um, you know, you have to have your... your parameters. And I think, again, they did a really good job with this. Um, but in general, chances are with those other two cats, if they just waited a little bit, they probably would have been okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we treat patients, not numbers. Um, mm -hmm. But this is how we can say, okay, I can, I can just hang out yeah. on that. You know, my cat's otherwise doing well. I've had patients in the hospital, cats in particular, that um, have had a fever and it's like, okay, we're, now we're going to run all this blood work. We're going to do all these other things. And the cat's eating, drinking, otherwise doing fine. Right, like right. everything else seems fine with it. Right. And it's like, well, maybe we can just let the cat tell us what's going on. Yep. Um, because, uh, but it's easy to forget like with the effect these drugs can have on the hypothalamus and, and what's happening in cats in particular particular do seem to be 
a little weird when it comes to that. They're like, well, mm-hmm. I don't know if, what I'm going to do with this drug. And they, they, they seem okay. Um, okay. I'm trying to remember. They didn't really comment or I, or I don't remember. I don't think there was any association. Well, there wasn't an association between activity, but I also don't think the cats were exhibiting signs of hyperthermia. Like they weren't panting. And I know their cats, cats don't really do that, but I they, don't, they I don't remember if they commented on I, that. Or I feel not. like they, I can't remember that they did either. They did comment on activity, but that would be the other question mm-hmm. was because my impression um, when I see this in cats again, whether this right. is just getting these types of drugs is that they don't act like they feel hot. Like no. it's a hypothalamic set point change. It seems like, like it. Yeah. That's my impression is that they are perfectly comfortable with their 104 temperature. They're not shivering like they had a real fever. They're not feeling cold, mm-hmm. but they're not, you know, sweating, not sweating. They don't, they're cats, but they're not, um, they're not exhibiting signs of being overheated. Right. Um, dogs are better at that. They tell us they broadcast it when they feel mm-hmm. hot. But um, so, I, yeah, I really do think that this is just the drugs are doing weird things to the hypothalamus and you just got to wait it out. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I really like the study. It was a, it was a good example of a well-designed, well-thought-out, well-executed, and well-written study. Agreed. Um, we often talk about study numbers, and they were very small here. Yeah. But the, the reason that that has less of an impact than in most other studies is because they found very big differences. Right, so right. So it doesn't take typically as many animals to find large differences um, in this case, the percentage of cats that develop post-anesthetic hyperthermia between the different uh, drug groups. Um, so in this situation, I, you know, the small numbers don't have a, that big of an impact. My only critique of the study um, is how they declared cats as being healthy. It was pretty minimal sure. um, uh, blood screening, just packed cell volume, total solids, and an azo stick, which I realize is yeah. what is commonly done for young animals that are getting spayed or neutered or yeah. having declawed. Those things, plus their physical exam and their history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you know, but not total not solids don't ensure that albumin right. is normal, and albumin right. is a carrier for many drugs. So, mm-hmm. um, would have been nice if it was a, a yeah. little more thorough. But overall, I think outstanding study. Yeah. No, I mean, there's always little things, like you said, the fact that all cats got glycopyrrolate and acepromazine is, you know, it's a limitation. It's not necessarily that this was a flaw. It's just a limitation of what you can say. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair point that, you know, how do you determine, um, what healthy is, which is an interesting question because I, we don't really have guidelines, like how much, cause at some point you're like, well, full body MRI might be a little too much, <laughs> right. you know, like, so where do yeah. you draw that line? Um, and you know, it's my guess is that this was just like, this is what we normally do in these patients and right. we assume they're normal. Like we're comfortable doing anesthesia. So it's super fair. Um, yeah. but it does, it does leave some of those questions. Um, and then again, like the fact that it would, would have been nice to know, like, were the cats exhibiting any behaviors that would suggest they were feeling warm or feeling cold, that kind of thing mm. might've been, might've been nice. Again, yeah. a really, really good study, like a nice model yeah. for how, how you can design and execute and write um, a nice scientific study that doesn't have to have thousands and thousands of individuals included um, and still be useful. Cause honestly, even without the stats, you can get a lot out of this. You're like, Oh, absolutely. this is common. This happens a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's probably, you know, we've already kind of implied, the most important takeaway is that cats frequent when you give cats drugs, they mm-hmm. um, they might do weird things and become hyperthermic. Um, and then and, that'll get better. And then that'll go away. Yeah, when you stop yeah. giving the drugs. <laughs> Sometimes even before you stop giving the drugs. Um, yeah. And cats are weird. Yeah. So that was the first study. Yeah. Um, really good one. 
The next one, we're still talking temperature, but we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to move to people. Um, and we're going to talk about sick patients now. So the, the second study is from critical care medicine in what year was this? I don't, 2017. So this one's more recent. Um, and the title is the absence of fever is associated with higher mortality and decreased antibiotic and fluid administration in emergency department patients with suspected septic shock. That that's the title. And it's a very informative title. Um, so this is, uh, Dr. Henning and colleagues, um, yeah, the title's great. Just I point out, you need to make sure we focus on the word associated with, um, yep. not causative. And they, and they do a good job in this paper, I think, of, of clarifying that. So yeah. this is an association, um, not cause and effect. Uh, and, and I think the second part of the title is getting to that, right? Correct. Like that was one of the things they looked at was, okay, there's mortality um, and also decreased antibiotic and IV fluid administration. That was the part of the study they were trying to figure out is that why mortality right. was different? Um, spoiler alert, they didn't find that um, association. But um, but yes, no, they're not saying that the absence of a fever is causing higher mortality. Um, but that they, they leave that really, I mean, they speculate some and we get to speculate some on our own about why that's happening. But uh, yeah, one of those nice, really informative titles. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, because that's, you know, some people that's all they're going to have time for. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a danger in just reading that. So um, this is another... Um, prospective study. This was part of another study that was happening at the same time. Um, so, you know, if you're interested, you can go look at that one. But basically, they are grouping patients um, to either whether they have a fever or not fever. Um, and these were patients, sorry, um, that were suspected to have septic shock. Correct. So septic shock patients, and then they were further categorized into having a fever or not having a fever. Um, this I thought was really interesting in how they defined a fever. Um, so it was either an elevated measured temperature or historical evidence of a fever, which I actually Associated thought Associated with the current complaint. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Associate, yeah, yeah. So like recently they had yeah. signs. So yeah, you're right. Yep. Um, but they didn't have to have a measured elevated temperature- um, to be considered in the fever group if they had a history of presumably things like chills um, right. or, you know, the, 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 when you're at home and you feel sick and you think you have a fever. So yeah. I thought that was actually really cool. It's a potential limitation, yeah, obviously. Um, but in a way, I mean, I don't know what the better way of doing things because if you exclude those patients and you put them in the non-fever group, you're, you're kind of misleading that Correct. group. You're misrepresenting that group. Um, but it, it's, it's also challenging to be like, well, do you really know that was a fever? Could that have been other things? So that's obviously a, a, a limitation. Um, but it, it, was, it was actually kind of a cool way of doing yeah. it. Not mm -hmm. something I would have necessarily thought of. They have the advantage of being able to ask, you know, human adults yep. like, you know, have you had these symptoms mm -hmm. that might have been explained by a fever? Um, so at any rate, they prospectively, you know, had these patients um, enrolled, um, but they weren't necessarily like dictating the, the treatment they were going to get. No, not that, at all. That this, it was really an observational um, prospective study. It was an observational prospective study. Yeah, it didn't even require consent uh, yeah. because the patients were just measure, they ma were, managed as they would have been yep. regardless of the do study. Do what you would do, doctors. Um, and th But they said, but we want to see what happens. And um, so basically what they found was, you know, the, the, the care that they received was, um, and again, these are patients with suspected septic shock mm -hmm. and that the patients that didn't have either a history of or a measured um, elevated temperature, so no evidence of a fever, um, were less likely to get antibiotics and they got it later um, and they got 
lower rates of fluids and yeah. So that was a big thing. So less antibiotics, less fluids. Um, that was the behavioral changes of the clinicians was the main, the main takeaway. Yeah. Now the fluid difference in fluid administration was, I would say subjectively pretty small. It yeah. was about 300 and something mils out of yeah. an average of over 3000. mils. So yeah. uh, maybe less than a 10% difference. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah, but it might be important. It yeah. may be. Um, it, it, they didn't find it to necessarily no. be in this study, <laughs> which is not surprising. Um, yeah, it, it was funny. When I read the title and then I read the article, I was actually expecting Correct. that the fluids and the antibiotics were independently going to be associated with outcome, and they weren't, um, which is in and of itself interesting, actually. So yeah. so basically what they, they then, you know, give you the, the data, and they say patients that never exhibited signs of a fever – um, either historically or um, in the hospital, had worse outcomes, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, a really important take. That's the main take home from this, this is, paper. Yeah. Um, and there's a few things that are important about that. But um, And then the other take home was that they got fewer, they were less likely to get antibiotics and um, they got a little less fluids. So doctors behaved a little differently without the presence of a fever. Mm-hmm. The interesting part, though, is that it, that didn't associate. So whether or not they, um, the antibiotic administration and fluid administration was not independently associated with mortality, like right. the fever or absence of it was. So that's really interesting. And actually, I was just talking with uh, a colleague earlier today. We were, trying to, we were talking about a case and we don't know what's going on with this case. And it's just, you know, one of the, one of the differentials is, is it, you know, uh, septic? Does it have a bacterial infection? And, um, and the comment was made, well, it's never had a fever. Um, mm-hmm. We've never documented a fever, so that would be weird. And I thought of this paper and I was like, yeah. actually, um, yeah. it's probably not, you know, that's maybe not as important of a predictor for whether or not there's an infection as we might think. Now, I actually, we talked about the case more and I agree that one may not um, have an infection, but that maybe shouldn't play as big of a role sure. in whether or not we think there's an infection as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's the other take home that I got from this paper that it did lead to doctors doing things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if those behaviors weren't specifically associated with outcome in this study, um, you know, it, it, I can imagine how many other things were done differently, um, whether that's diagnostically or things done differently. Are there other treatments um, that in a study this size, you know, you couldn't tease out? Were they not being aggressive about trying to do source control or, mm-hmm. you know, what other things? You're like, oh, they don't have a fever. Is the assumption that that patient is more stable? Right. Um this study would argue that's not the case. Um, And so then I started thinking like physiologically, why would that be? One, why are they not having a fever? And two, why is that associated with higher mortality? I I don't know what your initial thoughts are though. I've been talking a lot. (laughs) Well, I mean, you have to wonder if, you know, perhaps those patients have a greater degree of vasodilation and so they're losing more heat. Um, I don't think you can tell that from this study. No. They talk about vasopressor use mm-hmm. um, and they did talk about whether there were differences in blood pressure um, and they did find a significant difference yep. um, in that the afebrile group had a lower systolic blood pressure yep. um, and it, I'll point out the difference was eight, a mean of 89 in the febrile group and 86 in the afebrile right. group. For us in the veterinary study to pick up a difference that small as being significant, you can see it would take hundreds of patients like they Yeah, have. I was actually surprised that was significant, honestly. Yeah, like I know just it is so clinically, small. like and it <laughs> is it seems like a clinically irrelevant difference. It does seem like um it. because those are the means, right? Like yes. so the mean of um, Oh no, that was the systolic. 
Oh yeah. That, or, but I mean, it was the mean of all the patients, yes. systolic blood pressure. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The average systolic blood pressure is probably better to say, yeah. um, was 89 in the fever group and 86. And I'm just like, okay, like I'm not going to yeah. treat a patient differently if they're systolic blood pressure is 86 versus 89. I think it's very unlikely. And yeah. I suspect it was unlikely in these patients as well. Yeah. It's more like, okay, these are trending in that direction. I suppose that makes sense. Um, but the diastolic blood pressure was the same between the two. They didn't, yeah. I don't think they have the mean. Uh, they don't. Yeah, they don't have um, the mean. Otherwise, the mean. you know, looking at the at this table too, it, it's hard to see a, a reason why they would have come in mm-hmm. um, or had a reason for their temperature to be not affected by the infection. Um, their blood pressures really weren't, as we said, clinically seemingly that different. Their oxygen saturations weren't different. Shock index. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's hard to see the difference. Now, what yeah. we don't know is what the what the bacteria bacterium bacteria were between these groups, yeah. and some bacteria elicit a greater yeah. um, febrile response than mm-hmm. others. Um, so could that have something to do with it? Yeah, that's uh, a good point. So it's a good point. The other thing I think about is it, you kind of implied this when you're talking about you know vasodilation and things like that, mm-hmm. but. Are those patients, if they're in shock, right, mm-hmm. the shock itself is going to typically be associated with hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Um, septic shock is, you know, when you have that vasodilation is is potentially more associated with hyperthermia. That's like oh, the that's exception. The yeah. But if they're decompensating, right. right, like, so that's how I think about it. Like this, maybe we missed the fever or they just weren't able to mount that response to counteract the hypothermia you would expect with shock then it makes sense that the patients with lower temperatures, like if you aren't able to mount a fever, um, mm-hmm. there's some other problems there. Um, the other thing I think about, so that that's one of the reasons that I would be like, okay, that makes sense that lower temperature is, is associated with a worse outcome, but also like a fever is an adaptive response. Mm-hmm. Like that's, we've evolved to have a fever in the face of an infection because it helps us fight off the infection. Now that in sepsis, that host, uh, response to an infection can become dysregulated and that can lead to its own issues. Obvi- you know, that that's the problem with sepsis is that the host response goes a little haywire, but the fever is an appropriate host response. Like that's what you should do. You're trying to make your body inhospitable um, to whatever organism is growing there and make it less likely and harder for those organisms to replicate and to try like, so the fever is a, it's a good thing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why we evolved to do it. Um, so if, like you said, whether it's bacteria specific or, you know, patient specific, why they're not res- or mounting a fever, it, it kind of makes sense to me um, that that would be problematic. Now, that yeah. brings up the other question is, should we be interrupting a fever? <laughs> if, if, you know, and that is a controversial oh, question. Yeah. Like if you have a patient that should we be giving anti-pyretic um, medication, should we try to reduce the fever if the fever is beneficial right this the result of this is a bit of a stretch but the result of this article would shouldn't make you give you pause to treat a fever specifically should um, give you pause you're saying yeah i think yes. it should give you pause you're like, maybe we should just allow the fever yeah. to be because mm-hmm. maybe it's doing yeah, more than we're giving focus, it credit for if we haven't already focused on source control probably ought to it's a good good sign we should be doing that more right aggressively, <laughs> yeah <laughs> rather than uh, yeah. just trying to bring the temperature down artificially Right, which is something I feel like I run into a lot in oh, veterinary sure. medicine where sure. we go, oh, that number is high. I don't like it. I want it to be low. And we cool them off 
which is really frustrating. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and also, frankly, very rude. And people on this podcast and all over the place have mm-hmm. heard me say this before, that like cooling off a patient with a fever is rude. And it's not what you do for yourself when yep. you have a fever. Nope. Um, you wrap yourself up in blankets and you drink, you know, hot beverages, mm-hmm. eat, sip tea and watch movies on the couch. That's what you do when you have a fever and you mm-hmm. feel cold. And mm-hmm. then we have poor patients that come in with a fever and are shivering and we put fans on them and cool them off. And it's very rude. Um, give them a blanket, just like you would for grandma. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think we often worry. And, and I guess the two pieces from these, the both articles is, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on this, David, with what is the number, if there is one, um, above which you say, ooh, this is scary. And I just have to bring the number down when it comes to temperature. Do you have one? Um, with a, when I think it's due to a fever. Mm-hmm. Got. So, I'm glad you qualified uh, that. <laughs> uh, a change in the thermoregulatory set point induced mm-hmm. by some sort of antigen. Um, uh, the the number that I have used with absolutely no yeah. evidence to support it is 107. Yeah. Um, yep. It's lower for me if it's due to hyperthermia. Yes. Um, yes. Way. I mean, way way lower. Yeah. You know, even if they're 104 and they have a history of being in a hyperthermic situation, I'm going to cool them. Yeah. Well, that's, um, it would be rude not, not aggressively, to, but, but it but would be I rude will, not to, right? Correct. Like, Oh, it's really warm in this room. Suck it up. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> cool yeah. them up. Like, so yeah, like for me, that's, that's a huge distinction. Yeah. If they're overheated, if it's a mismatch between, you know, heat production and heat loss because of environmental factors, yeah. either the patient is working themselves up or the room or that, you know, with outside in the heat, cool that animal off. What, yeah. what, whatever, if, if their temperature is 102 and they're acting hot, Help yeah. them cool off. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Now so with the febrile ones that are yeah. 107 higher, I'm still not going to start with external cooling. I'm going to start with anti-inflammatory exactly medication. Right. And then if yep. that's insufficient, then cool them. Because um, as you said, cooling them is just making their body work harder and yeah. wasting yeah. more energy producing heat. Um, and it's uncomfortable. Yeah. That's 100% how I feel. Like if they're, if I believe it's fever, and again, the animals are pretty good about telling you which one it is. How do they feel? If they're, sure. if they feel hot, help them cool off. If they feel cold, give them a blanket. Um, but if it's a fever and it's starting to get in that range where I'm like, ooh, this makes me nervous. Yeah, then I'm going to give an antipyretic if, if I can safely do so. Yeah. Um, but, and, and what I try to explain to students, because people get nervous about the temperatures being that high. They're like, this is dangerous, right? And it's like, well that's what we don't know. We don't know at what point is it dangerous because Mm -hmm. it's an adaptive response to a certain point and your body has what are called heat shock proteins that they will upregulate the production of in your cells to protect them from this extra heat. So it's like, okay, bacteria, you are screwed or virus, you are screwed, but we are going to insulate ourselves. We're going to, you know, that, that would be like the analogy I often tell you have your in-laws are visiting, right. And they're overstaying their welcome. So you turn up the thermostat in their mm-hmm. room, um, but you open the window in your room. Like what, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of, yeah. that's the analogy. You want to get them to move out. You want to make it so they don't want to stay here anymore, but you have to balance like, okay, but I, I also live here. <laughs> and so I'm um, trying to find that balance. And so your body has some of those things. It, it, yeah. it will, you know, produce heat shock proteins. Um, and that's the other interesting thing, even with like heat stroke that we worry about is you can be adapted for that too. Like there's conditioning that can be done. So mm-hmm. like racing greyhounds routinely right. have temperatures in the 107s and higher after a race and they're fine. Um, you know, other working dogs um, can get really high temperatures. I'm not saying ignore 107. That's not what I'm trying to yeah. say. But there are studies out there showing that conditioned animals sure. um, can tolerate those situations. And so there isn't, in my mind, there is no line 
There is no number um, above which is always dangerous and below which is always safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, the key is one, treat the patients, not the numbers. Um, and two, uh, there's okay, there's a couple more things. Not having a fever <laughs> should not remove infectious causes from your list of differentials. Absolutely. Um, which I think is is something that we, yeah, we could we do better over, of. I think we had one over the weekend. Um, yeah. We have Dr. Figueredo here in the room um, now, and uh, she took in a patient that was DKA and had a temperature of 99.1. Yeah. Um, and still felt the dog likely, at minimum, had aspiration pneumonia. Yeah. And potentially sepsis. And sure enough, when we ran its blood work, it looked very septic. There you go. Um, yeah. Good job. Um, yeah. So again, the absence of a fever does not rule out the possibility of an infection. Um, but also having a fever is in and of itself potentially a good thing in, in some mm-hmm. of these patients. And so um, maybe we need to, to, again, this study, you know, that we're talking about didn't address whether or not interfering um, with the, the febrile response was good or bad. That was not discussed at all. But, um, but it should give us pause to say, you know, if we have a mild fever um, in a patient, maybe we should just let that ride for a bit, sure. get a little more information before immediately going to interrupting it. And this has come up with like vaccines, like with COVID vaccines, everybody was talking about, right. oh, when you get your vaccine, if you afterwards, you're going to feel crummy, you're going to be achy and you're going to have a fever. And this, it was actually really interesting that people were talking about, should you take anti-inflammatory? Should you take um, ibuprofen or acetaminophen? And I, as far as I can tell that we don't know, um, there yeah, is some the concern that you, didn't. That you try not yeah. to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not aware that there are clear studies to yeah, say your vaccine either. will be less effective, but that's the concern. Like right. if you're interrupting the inflammatory response, well, the inflammatory response is what you have to have sure. ultimately in order to um, get the response you're looking for and tell your immune system, hey, make some you know um, memory antibodies. But um, but I don't think we, we have that quantified or can say, like, if you feel really, really crappy, then, I mean, I'll be honest, sure. I, I did with one of my vaccines. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I didn't have to with all of them, but it, it is, it's one of the, but when I took it, I was like, oh, is this a good idea? Should I not be doing this? And then I was like, well, I've already mounted the response, so maybe I'm okay. I don't know. So, uh, but yeah. it, it is something we should think about. And that leads into a question I was going to ask you. So for most of the last 20 to 25 years, mm-hmm. you know, if we have a patient that's so febrile that we want to do something about mm-hmm. it, our, our option has been NSAIDs. Yeah. Um, but for 2000 and as of last year or two, we now again have um, dipyrone, oh, which is a yeah. pure antipyretic without yeah. anti-inflammatory activity. So is that what we should give so that we don't that mute their inflammatory good response? question. No. Um, I haven't used it before, um, it, like in, in clinical yeah. patients. Um, I have... It was off. It was taken off yeah. the market somewhere in yeah. the late 90s, and then it just came back about a year and a half I ago. wasn't even aware of that, actually. Yeah. Um, I collaborated with some colleagues in South America on a, a study. They were, when dipyrone was one of the mm-hmm. um, drugs that they looked at. They were looking at coagulation stuff, which was um, what I collaborated with them on. And um, But I've personally never used it because it wasn't available. Uh, but theoretically, yeah, that I mean, that would make more sense. The other one I think about if for dogs, obviously not for cats, but acetaminophen mm-hmm. um, would be yeah. the other one that isn't really an anti-inflammatory per se, but it is an antipyretic. Um, not that we really know how it works, but yeah. um, and obviously that's not available in cats. But that would be that would be the other thing I would consider would be yeah. an acetaminophen rather than an NSAID or a steroid um, if it was a dog. But dipyrone is is a yeah. really 
good suggestion and something we should probably reconsider. Yeah, back when I um, in the nineties when I when I actually did use it, I mean it was it was very very effective. Yeah, like, I mean I would see I've seen patients' temperatures drop like five degrees in thirty minutes. Wow. Um, like whether that's good or not, I don't know. Right, that's the question. That's the effect that I saw at times. Um, yeah, like five degrees from one hundred five to like to normal or yeah. beyond normal. Would they sometimes drop low? I don't know if I saw enough okay. to really comment on that. Fair. I was working as a technician at the time, so I was just literally just the one giving the drug, it and monitoring it, um, and we didn't use it all that often. But gotcha. um, yeah, yeah, and I, I guess I would say there's probably not that many instances uh, in a given you know week month year that I'd be like, I really need to lower this temperature, oh, and I'm no, not wanting. But ever. Yeah. but um, but I think it's a really good point. Do, do why did it get pulled from the market? Not I sure. I can't remember the reason. Okay. I mean, yeah. clearly some adverse effect in people would be right. the reason almost all right. drugs get removed. Well, because it's one I of those things, know. yeah, you see articles about it and it's like, yeah, we don't have it here. Other countries still still use it. Um, and here in the U.S. we haven't um, because it was pulled for people. And, you know, we tend to go, like, if it's not available, it's not available. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's just a really good question. In theory, on paper, yeah, that sounds way better, right? Like, just reduce the fever to try to make them more comfortable. And that's the reason that, like, I typically want to give them an antipyretic of some kind, an anti-inflammatory is like, they're, they're miserable. I know like Mm -hmm. when I have a fever, I feel kind of miserable. And if I feel better after taking an NSAID, then I want to do that for the patient. It's not necessarily that it's going to improve anything. Um, You know, I want some inflammatory response, but not too much. Um, So that's usually my thought process behind giving it. It's more for patient comfort than it is a treatment for the disease per se. Right. Um, But that's the thing. Like, but should we be doing that? Should they just suffer a little bit more for a little bit longer? Right. Cause it's going to help them get over things. Um, that's the choice your body has made by mounting a fever. It's like, we're going to be uncomfortable, but in the long run, this is for our benefit. Um, but when does that become too much, too little? Um, yeah. it's hard. It's hard when we start fighting physiology, we get, we get it wrong a lot. <laughs> mm. Um, uh, you know, that's, I'm very much as a, you know, do as little as we can get away with and just yeah. support them through because I think our patients heal on their own a lot better than when, you know, we, we can overmetal. Um, I, I do think we can do that. And this is, you know, another example of that, but let, me, let me briefly correct the mistake. I mean, their diprone oh. is a non-steroidal. I it is. didn't have an NSAID activity, but it does. Oh, um, okay. And the reason it was taken off the human market is because it uh, can cause agranulocytosis. Which that is seems bad. Very bad. Yeah. You want your <laughs> granulocytes. Um, but it's back now. It is back for only for veterinary use. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. I was like, I'm surprised they brought that back. Yeah. Kind of like they did with chloramphenicol where it was mm-hmm. like, Ooh, you really don't want to, I mean, we, we always had that one available to us, but that one's coming back a little bit in people too, particularly in like yep. third world countries. Cause it's a really good antibiotic. Okay. So it mm-hmm. is an NZ. It is. Um, okay. Um, but it's just like better it at lowering be, fevers. Like, like acetaminophen seems to be yeah. a little better at, yeah. uh, fever reduction. reducing fever and not as powerful for its anti-inflammatory activity. Gotcha. So dipyrone's more like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks for that correction. Mm-hmm. Cause like I said, I've never used it. Um, just, you know, little availability. Um, if you had a microphone, we'd ask you fig if you used it in Brazil. Yeah, yeah you did. Yeah. A few times. Yeah, it wasn't banned in, in South. Yeah, I think in most South American countries. That's like, I can't remember now um, specifically, but 
All right. Well, we'll have to, maybe we'll dig up some research on that and we'll talk about that at a future mm-hmm. journal club. But uh, yeah, a couple, it was just those two articles yeah, this, really this articles. week. Um, yeah, they were good ones. They were simple, straightforward ones. Didn't try to answer too many questions at once, which are generally my favorite kind. I think when you get a little too big for your britches, it's, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it gets complicated and then you just, it gets messy. Uh, but yeah, so two nice studies, not trying to do or say too much, but still contributing some, some really useful stuff to the world. Um, so thanks to those authors. Mm-hmm. Well done. Thank you, David, for yeah. being here again and having the conversation. Um, really appreciate it. And then hopefully we won't have any issues next week and we can come back and talk about articles, 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 rather you remain unremarkable. I'm getting good at the timing on that, I have to say. Um, so at any rate, um, thank, thank you guys for listening. And thanks, David, again, for being here. And we'll catch you guys next time. Yep. Bye-bye.